Good morning. Happy Thanksgiving. We have much to be thankful for, not the least of which, certainly, is that though our sins are many, his mercy is more. Much to be thankful for. He's the giver of all good gifts, the giver and sustainer of life. Everything that we have has come from him. And that greatest of gifts, his son, Jesus Christ, given for us. We're going to talk about this great salvation that Jesus has secured on our behalf today as Christians. But before we hear the good news this morning, we've got to hear the bad news. The bad news of our sin and our guilt. And that's just where Paul takes us this morning in the book of Romans. As you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. On the morning of December the 26th, 2004, an earthquake registering 9.1 magnitude struck Indonesia. It was the third largest earthquake in recorded history. But as bad as the earthquake was, the tsunami that followed it was worse. The Boxing Day tsunami, as it has become known, caused a wall of water in some places 100 feet high to come ashore, bulldozing nearly everything in its path and killing over 227,000 people in just a matter of a few hours. Before that massive wall of water came to shore, the ocean ominously receded revealing the normally water-covered seabed. Curious tourists on holiday wandered with amazement out into the newly expanded beachfront, unaware of the imminent danger that was hurling their way at more than 500 miles an hour from the open ocean. They didn't understand what was happening, and they certainly didn't understand the danger of their situation. If they had known what was coming, surely they would have fled immediately to higher ground. But in their ignorance of the danger, they casually picked up seashells when they should have been running for their lives. In a similar way, most people in the world today aren't fully aware of the seriousness of the situation they are in and of the danger that is running toward them. They're enjoying life. They're going about their business, picking up seashells, as it were, unaware of the great tsunami of God's wrath that is coming and that is, in some sense, already present among us. The Apostle Paul is, in these verses, sounding the alarm about God's judgment and the danger that people are in because of their guilt and sin. He is sounding the alarm, warning people to run to higher ground through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we see the Apostle Paul doing here in Romans chapter 1 and throughout the book of Romans, really. I want you to join with me as I read for us our text this morning from verses 18 through 20 of Romans chapter 1. The Apostle Paul continuing to write and now getting into the very body of this letter says this, 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. This is the word of God. Let us pray together. Our Heavenly Father, as we open your word and read it, we are struck by its truthfulness, its gravity, its insight, and its urgency. We pray, Lord, that you would give us that sense of urgency, that sense of seriousness, sobriety of the moment, as we hear from you, as we hear of your holy judgment, your righteous wrath, and of the good news that we can avoid it through faith in Jesus Christ. Teach us, Lord, through your word to flee from the wrath that is to come. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are now entering into the main body of this letter of Paul to the Romans. The first 17 verses have been largely introductory, with Paul introducing himself to an audience he's never met, living in a city, Rome, where he's never visited, writing to churches he didn't found. So he took some time to introduce himself. Also in these verses, he has addressed his readers and of his eagerness to come see them and visit them face to face and preach the gospel among them. And then in verses 16 and 17, he's shared with them the main theme of the letter, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul writes there as he shares the main theme of the letter in the closing of this introduction in verses 16 and 17. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. As we've seen together in the past few weeks, a basic outline of the book of Romans goes this way. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. We see Paul lay out the sobering reality of humanity's universal guilt before a holy God in chapters 1 through 3. In chapters 4 through 11, Paul lays out the comforting truth of salvation by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And finally, in chapters 12 through 16, Paul shares with us the realities of our new life in Christ that are seen in the many fruits of gratitude for all that God has done for us in giving us his Son. So Romans is a book that systematically lays out for us the gospel of God that takes us from our guilt to God's grace to our response of gratitude. Beginning here in verse 18 of chapter 1, Paul begins to build the case for our universal human guilt because of our sin. This argument about our guilt will be sustained through the end of chapter 3. So we've got 
some time to spend together around this issue of our guilt before God. This theme of our guilt before a holy God is summarized in chapter 3 and verse 23, one of those well-known verses of Romans taken from the Romans road of the gospel. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is mankind's universal problem. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. In the remaining verses of chapter 1 here, Paul lays out the truth of universal human guilt because of sin with an emphasis upon the Gentiles, the Greeks, the non-Jews. In chapters 2 and 3, he's going to lay out the truth that Jews, despite all their special privileges as God's chosen people, are just as guilty as the Gentiles and just as guilty because of their own sin. Now, why does Paul begin the body of this letter with such bad news? Paul has already stated that the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news. After all, that's what the word gospel means. It means good news. And the gospel really is good news. Why start a letter about the good news of the gospel with such a downer message of human guilt and God's wrath? Well, Paul begins here with the dark subject of human guilt because it is the necessary backstory for understanding why the gospel really is good news. In other words, before you can really understand and appreciate the true value and treasure that is the good news, you have to understand the true darkness and danger of the bad news. It's been said before that You've got to get people lost before you can get them saved. There's a lot of truth to that. Of course, we don't get people lost, right? That's our natural condition. We're all born lost, separate, apart from God, sinners by nature and by choice. The problem is most of us don't realize that. In our natural estate, we think we're pretty good. We think God grades on a curve and based on everybody else that we see, they're all losers, God must be pretty happy with us. We're certainly better than half the people. No, it's not the case. God doesn't grade on a curve. The reality is we all, in our natural condition, apart from Christ and God's grace, stand before God guilty, sinners, deserving of his just judgment, deserving of his wrath. So Paul is sharing with us the truth of universal guilt of mankind because of sin and the wrath of God that comes to us as a result. In verse 17, Paul has shared that in the gospel, the good news, the righteousness of God has been revealed. And now in verse 18, he says that the wrath of God is revealed. Same word, revealed. Uncovered. Shown. For all to see. So verses 18 through 20 explain why God's saving righteousness is needed. Why God's saving righteousness revealed in the gospel is needed. It's because of what we see in verses 18 through 20. It's because God's wrath has been revealed. That's put us in need of a revelation of God's 
righteousness in the gospel. We need verse 17 because of the realities of verses 18 through 20 and following. Verses 18 through 20 begin to show us the danger we all face outside of God's saving grace, the danger we face from God's wrath. So we need to understand what this wrath is, why this wrath is necessary, and how it relates to us. Paul says in verse 18 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. The wrath of God is the anger of God, the pure and righteous anger of God against sin. The wrath of God is not like the wrath of man. It's not like the anger of human beings. Our wrath and anger are always, almost always, tainted by sin and selfishness. Our wrath and our anger are characterized by emotional outbursts that are often uncontrolled and oftentimes are an overreaction to the situation. Our outbursts of anger often come because of our own pride, our own embarrassment, our own frustration, our own fatigue. But God's wrath and anger is nothing like ours. The wrath of God is never capricious. It's always holy. It's always appropriate. It's always just. And it's always controlled. God's wrath is his righteous response to mankind's sin and rebellion. It is a necessary response of a holy God. God cannot respond in any other way than with wrath and anger and judgment when his creatures have disobeyed, have sinned, have erred, have rebelled. Some people say that God is a God only of love. He's not a God of anger or wrath. Sometimes in an effort to reach people with a positive message, churches have rented billboards. And they put on these billboards a message something like, God isn't angry. He isn't angry with you. Beloved, that just isn't what the Bible teaches. We've created a God that we prefer. A God of our own making. A small G God. An idol, really. That is not the God of the Bible. Listen to what Psalm 7 says. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation or anger every day, all day long. God is angry with the wicked. God is angry with the unrighteous. It goes on to say this. If a man does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Friends, God is a God of love, to be sure. And we'll get to that. But you can't skip over the inconvenient truths of Scripture. That God is also a God of holiness, righteousness, and justice. And therefore, He's a God who responds to sin and rebellion with wrath and anger. Now, the Bible speaks of God's wrath in different ways. John MacArthur helpfully notes in his study Bible, some of you may have that in your laps this morning. You can see this note. He notes helpfully in his study Bible that there are 
several kinds of divine wrath described in the Bible. He says this, God has various kinds of wrath. The first kind is eternal wrath, which is hell. A second kind of wrath is eschatological wrath, which is the final day of the Lord. Third, there is cataclysmic wrath, like the flood and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Fourth, there is consequential wrath, which is the principle of sowing and reaping, cause and effect. Fifth, there is the wrath of abandonment, which is God's removing restraint and letting people go to their sins. It is this last form of God's wrath, the wrath of abandonment, that is primarily in view in this passage. We're going to see that Paul repeats this one phrase over and over. He says, God gave them over. He repeats it again and again. God gave them over, verse 24. God gave them over, verse 26. God gave them over, verse 28. This particular form of God's wrath is his abandoning the unbeliever in their sin, leaving them in their sin, leaving them to their own devices, removing his restraining hand, and letting their sin and rebellion just run its natural course. It's an act of judgment in which God confirms people in their decision to rebel against him and in which he lets them face the just consequences of their rebellion. This present day revealing of God's wrath anticipates and is but a foretaste of the future day of God's wrath that will come on judgment day and last for all eternity. Now, some might be tempted to think that the wrath of abandonment Abandonment doesn't sound so bad. God just leaves me alone? <laughs> That's all I ever wanted. Just leave me alone, God. Let me live my life. Let me do it my way. Friend, the wrath of God in all its forms is terrifying. And the wrath of God in abandonment is perhaps the most terrifying. Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The context there makes it clear that to fall into the hands of the living God for the purpose of judgment. To fall into the hands of the living God who's angry and wrathful. God's wrath in all its forms is to be dreaded. God's wrath in all its forms is to be avoided, if at all possible. And especially, perhaps, this wrath of abandonment. You see, friends, there's only hope in the mercy and grace of God, drawing us to himself, revealing himself to us, showing us our sin, that's what we need. We don't need God's abandonment. We need God's intervention. We need God to take us by the shoulders and wake us up, to show us our need. But there are times when God shows his judgment and God executes his wrath and leaves the sinner in their sinful condition 
of rebellion. If God leaves us to wallow in our sin and guilt, we will never come to faith in Jesus and we will never find salvation from his wrath. So verse 18 answers the question of why we need the righteousness of God that has been revealed in the gospel. Why do we need it? Why do we need the gospel? Because the wrath of God has also been revealed. And it's revealing itself to us every day. Without the gracious intervention of God in the gospel, which reveals the righteousness of God, we will face the wrath of God and be left to our sins and given over in our rebellion without hope of ever finding rescue. So we need the righteousness of God in the gospel because of the present revelation of the wrath of God. We need to be rescued from our sin and guilt and from the wrath of God that is being revealed even now. But why is God revealing his wrath now, incrementally? Why isn't God's wrath only future and final? Are people really so bad that they deserve God's wrath even now? That they deserve this judgment of abandonment? Scripture's answer is yes. And it gives us three reasons. And that's what we're going to see this morning. Three reasons why God's wrath has been revealed and is continuing to be revealed. First of all, God's wrath is revealed and is continuing to be revealed because all people are ungodly and unrighteous. Paul says in verse 18 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The fact that God reveals this wrath from heaven signifies the dwelling place of God and it underscores his transcendence and his supremacy over all that he's made. It reminds us that God is the one who's created all things, that he sees all, that he knows all, that we cannot hide from him, and that we are ultimately accountable to him. Psalm 94 reminds us that we can't hide from God. Listen to what it says there. Speaking of the wicked, it says, they pour forth words, they speak arrogantly. All who do wickedness vaunt themselves. They crush your people, O Lord, and they afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and and they murder the orphans. And then notice what they say. The Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. Then the psalmist responds with a wake-up call. He says, pay heed, you senseless among the people. And when you will you understand, you stupid ones? He who planted the air, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who chastens the nations, will he not rebuke? Even he who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are a mere breath. God sees and God knows. Nothing can be hidden from his sight. There's no hiding from him. Hebrews 4.13 says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do, to whom we are accountable, to whom we will answer. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Paul uses two words here that overlap in their meaning and they summarize really every act of human sin and rebellion. 
If you want to slice the onion finely enough, you can say that ungodliness is the sin of failing to honor God as God. Failing to give him the honor and reverence and worship and thanks that he is due. Unrighteousness, on the other hand, is simply the lack of righteousness or the opposite of righteousness. It is to do the wrong thing morally. It is to do the sinful thing, the wicked thing, the rebellious thing. And Paul will later on in this same chapter give a a list of sins that serve as examples of what ungodliness and unrighteousness look like. Look down with me at Romans 1, 28 through 31. Paul is describing here the actions of the ungodly and the unrighteous. He says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. It's quite a rap sheet. The truth is all of us have a record with God. God who rules from heaven and sees all and knows all. We find ourselves all guilty in his sight. Interestingly, verse 21, we didn't read that yet, but Verse 21 of Romans 1 says there's another mark of the ungodly and the unrighteous, and that is that they do not honor God or give thanks. It's a good word on the Sunday before Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is one of those great hallmarks of a genuine believer. Likewise, ingratitude to God is one of the key identifiers of an unbeliever. How good it is to give thanks to God. To give thanks to God is a form of worship. It's an acknowledgement that none of us have built what we have. None of us have gained what we have without God's goodness in our lives, without God giving us life and breath and all things. It's a confession of our dependence upon Him. Thanksgiving is the reflex of a heart redeemed and a life being renewed. Well, this summarizes the condition of every human being outside the grace of God in the gospel. Ungodly and unrighteous. We're all sinners deserving of God's wrath. We're all ungodly and unrighteous. And because God is holy, he has to respond to ungodliness and unrighteousness in a holy way. And that demands he respond to our sin with wrath. For every sinner, God's wrath is both a present and future reality. It is a present reality in that God's wrath hangs over us. It's a future reality in that unless we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus Christ to save us, we will die in our sins and face God's eternal wrath. As Paul says in Ephesians, outside of God's mercy and grace in Jesus, we're all children of wrath, destined for wrath. Listen to how he describes these believers in Ephesus. He describes their former life of unbelief. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, 
Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. This is our common ancestry. This is our common history. We are all bound up with our original father, Adam, in his sin and rebellion. So we are guilty before God. God has revealed his wrath because we are all ungodly and unrighteous sinners. Guilty in his sight. Second reason God has revealed his wrath in the present time is because all people have seen and yet suppressed the truth. All people have seen and suppressed the truth. Verse 18 continues to describe those who are ungodly and unrighteous. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now what does that mean? Without God's grace in Jesus Christ, all people are ungodly and unrighteous and they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. To suppress something is to hold it down, to push it down, to minimize it, to discount it, to disregard it, to try to find ourselves distracted from it. All of mankind suppresses the truth. What truth do they suppress? It is the truth of God, the truth about God, the truth about God revealed in nature, in the world around us, the world that God has made. God has revealed himself to us in two primary ways. He's revealed himself to us in general revelation. General revelation is nature. It's called general, not because it's general truths, but because it generally goes out to everyone. Indiscriminately, everybody gets exposed to this revelation from God, and its focus is in nature, what God has made, what God has created. These things reveal to us the truth about who God is. That's the first way God reveals himself to us. General revelation, natural revelation, nature. The second way God reveals himself to us is through special revelation. Special revelation is special in the sense that it is encapsulated in God's word and in God's son, Jesus Christ. You have to be exposed to God's word or exposed to Jesus Christ in order to know his special revelation. It doesn't go to everyone automatically just by being a resident of the universe. Special revelation has to be taught. Special revelation has to be shared, preached, disclosed. How will they hear unless there's a preacher? That's what Paul says later on in Romans. The gospel must go forth. This is why we need missionaries to go out and share the good news of Jesus Christ. This is why we need faithful evangelists who will be preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel. This is why we preach the gospel week after week after week because people need to hear it. We're not born with this knowledge. But the knowledge that Paul is talking about here is the knowledge that comes from general revelation. The knowledge of God, that God exists. Something of who God is and our accountability to him. 
This general revelation, the revelation of nature, is the truth about God that goes out to everyone everywhere all the time. Look with me at verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. The invisible God has made himself clearly seen through the natural world around us. It's ironic. He's invisible, but he's made himself clearly seen. Everyone can see it. Everyone can understand it. God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature can be understood clearly through what has been made. Everyone sees it. Everyone knows it. It's been said that there are no atheists in foxholes. That's true. But the reality is there are no atheists. According to the Bible, there's no agnostics. Atheists say they don't believe in God. Well, God says here that he doesn't believe in atheists. <laughs> Paul tells us here that everyone clearly sees that there is a God, that he created all that is, that he is a God of eternal power and creativity and goodness and beauty and truth. God has revealed himself in the vistas of the landscape and in the vastness of space and in the oceans teeming with life and in the skies filled with stars and in the light and the warmth of the sun and in the intricate design of each and every small snowflake. God is always revealing himself, always preaching, I'm here, I exist, I made you, and you're accountable to me. Psalm 19 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day it pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. The heavens are constantly telling, constantly preaching, constantly declaring that there is one who made them, who's greater than all, and to whom all will give an account. Look at verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Everyone knows it. We all know the truth. It is unmistakable. It is irrefutable. It is as plain as the nose on our face. It is evident to them because God made it evident to them. God succeeds in whatever he does, right? Is God's will ever thwarted? Does God ever fail? God succeeds in whatever he sets out to do. He's God after all. And God set out to make himself evident to every person. Therefore, every person knows that God exists and that they are accountable to him as their creator. It's just that simple. So then why doesn't everyone believe in God? Look again with me at the end of verse 18. Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God has made his existence plain. He's revealed himself to every person through the universe he's made. But we suppress this revealed truth in our unrighteousness. 
We love our sin more than we love the God who made us. We want to rule over our own lives. We want to do what we want to do. We want to do whatever it is that our hearts tell us to do. We don't want anyone else telling us what we can or can't do. We certainly don't want anyone telling us we are wrong or sinful or ungodly or unrighteous. We don't want to hear any talk about judgment or wrath or hell or accountability. And so we push the truth down. We bury it. In our sinful rebellion, we ignore literal mountains of evidence and oceans of truth and vast skies full of facts and galaxies that are filled with proof. We love our sin more than we love the truth that's right in front of us. We love our rebellion more than the evidence that's all around us staring us in the face. God has revealed his wrath against sin and rebellion because all people have seen and yet rejected the truth about God that he has so abundantly and convincingly revealed through the world he has made all around us. Third reason God has revealed his truth is because all people are guilty and without excuse. Look again with me at verse 20. Pay special attention to the end. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Since God has made his existence and eternal power and divine nature so evident through the world he has made, it leaves every one of us without an excuse. God has supplied every human being with overwhelming evidence of his existence. There's no one who can say to God on judgment day, why didn't you tell me you existed? Why didn't you reveal yourself to me? Why didn't you show yourself to me? And in fact, God was doing so every day of your life through the world he's made around you. But instead, we push down the truth of God. We suppress it in our unrighteousness. There is a willful refusal to accept the facts. See, the rejection of God is never merely a rational issue. It's not an issue of reasoning. It's not an issue of evidence. It's always, always, always a moral issue. We reject God because we do not want to be accountable to him. We reject God because we do not want to submit to Him. We do not want to answer to Him. And so mankind in its sin blissfully wanders out into the exposed seabed of depravity, unaware of the tsunami of God's wrath that is coming for sure on Judgment Day. And God's revelation of Himself through creation leaves every unbelieving person without excuse. That's the bad news. And it's bad. It's bleak. It's dark. It's heavy. Perhaps you're feeling that. Feel the weight of that. Feel the burden of that. It's precisely Paul's point. He wants his readers, he wants us to understand the plight we're in 
apart from the grace of God and Jesus Christ. We are all of us, all of us guilty before a holy God. And therefore, we are all facing the certain wrath and judgment of God, both in this life and for all eternity. If we fail to realize it and turn from our sin and trust in Christ. You see, yes, God is a God of justice. He is a God who responds to sin and rebellion consistently in anger and wrath. But he's also a God of love. He is a God of mercy and kindness and grace and forgiveness. Isaiah 55 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. You see, the good news only makes sense, real sense, in light of the bad news. The glorious light of Jesus Christ and the grace of God that can be found in him only is highlighted by the fact of the darkness and the blackness of the canvas that is our lives apart from his grace. God abundantly pardons those who seek him and trust his son Jesus. And the result is divine deliverance from his wrath. Because there on Calvary's hill, Jesus Christ bore the full measure of God's wrath against our sin. He satisfied God's wrath. He satisfied God's just judgment. The sinless one took upon himself our sin and our guilt and with it, God's wrath against our sin and guilt. Friends, the tsunami of God's wrath is coming. And you will face the full force of it unless you run for the hill of Calvary where Jesus paid it all. Let's pray together. Father God, this is a sobering reality that all mankind outside of your grace lies under a verdict of guilt and a sentence of wrath, divine wrath. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Our hearts should melt in the face of such reality. But Lord, with you there is mercy. With you there is forgiveness. You will abundantly pardon those who come to you in repentance and faith, trusting in your son, Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. We need not fear the wrath that is to come if we flee to the cross, higher ground at Calvary. Thank you, Jesus, for taking our sin our guilt, and bearing in your own body on the cross the very wrath of God that our sins deserved, that we might go free, that we might be forgiven, 
that it might be said of us that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.